Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. And here's someone with great passion about education. She's Dr. Kathleen Corley, author along with Glenn Plaskin of The Magical Place We Call School, creating a safe space for learning and happiness in a challenging world. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places for everything about Dr. Corley. Go to the magical place we call school.com. And Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'd like to quote from your preface in the book, I think, which sets a tone. And it is the following As I always say, nothing wonderful happens in the principal's office. Rather, the magic happens in the classroom. Once a principal truly understands this, his or her overarching mission becomes clear. Remove any and all impediments between good teachers and good teaching. It's as uncomplicated as that, end quote. Well, I think that says a lot. And I think part of the problem, as I understand it, is that, uh, you know, sometimes in the school systems and in the private schools, you have this bureaucracy that tends to get in the way of good teaching. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. There needs to be a, a certain sense of uniformity to what we do, mm -hmm. and there are standards to what we do. But while you're being firm with the standards and what we need to teach, the how we need to teach it needs to be a little bit more flexible because teachers are people, not computers, and they delight in teaching things in entertaining and engaging ways with their students. If they didn't get to do that, we'd miss out immeasurably. I guess the challenge is, and especially in a public school system, no matter where you go, almost by nature, you have to have a certain uniformity and conformity of teaching because there's so many students and so many teachers and such a big system. That's whether it's in a big city or even a medium-sized city or a town, you've got to have some sort of, I hate to use this word conformity, but there has to be, as you said, there's that, there has to be some sense of that. But at the same time, how do you allow a teacher to be creative with his or her students? Well, I, I think what we're talking about is quality control. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, imagination opportunities too. Those two can meld together because teachers who want to make sure that their students are learning at higher levels find ways to elevate their game. And when they do that, the sky's the limit. If we suppressed that, it, teaching would not be what it is. This, this school would, would have trouble operating that way because there's so many creative people here who know what the standards are, who know what's expected of them. Their children perform at high levels. They teach at high levels. They coach each other to do the same things, but they come up with fantastic ideas, different ways to teach the standards. The title of your book is The Magical Place We Call School, Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World. I've always had a problem with the world with the word safe space just because it seems that certain groups are allowed safe spaces and other groups don't seem to be. How about the, the group of teachers? Are teachers allowed safe space in today's school environment? What I mean by that is, to your point, if a teacher wants to come up with a creative way of addressing something in class to make that level go higher in the world of education, they get called out perhaps by some student that's offended by what they said 
and then it's reported to the administration, then the, it, it's rained down on the teachers. So how do you navigate those waters in today's world? That would be something that wouldn't happen here because when, when people are being creative, it doesn't mean that they're being controversial necessarily. I, I think it would be hard to offend a third grader uh, in some way, because whatever it is we're talking about would not be political or religious or any of those other things that that could get a teacher into hot water. In high schools, there are varying opinions on what should be taught and how it should be taught. And that's where you'll have the I'm sorry, I feel offended come from a child to a teacher and then to administration, and it becomes a big deal. And it may be that the child uh, is, is saying, I'm uncomfortable because he hates that teacher or he hates that subject. It would be hard to parse that. Now, in high schools, I could see where teachers would think, oh, oh, okay, uh, I'm supposed to dance on the head of a pin and teach. Uh, how am I supposed to do that without offending anyone? It's probably impossible, probably. So your book is aimed at a earlier stage of education rather than the later stage or latter stage of education. I guess later stage would be better, latter versus former versus later. See, I'm being educational here. But no, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because that, that helps explain it from my, uh, to me and to our audience uh, listening or watching around the world. You see schools as magical places. Is that from your own experience and your own background, which is extensive? Or are you writing it from the point of view that others should see it the way you see it? Or both? I think there are magical places all over the country where wonderful things are happening for children in schools. But I also think that those uh, knowing about that uh, widespread um, the public, uh, widespread swaths of the public knowing that those things exist, not necessarily uh, so common. Some of the same people who are kind of throwing rocks at us about what we teach or how we teach uh, are the same people who may not answer our phone calls, may not come for um, a conference, may not sign uh, the calendar, the re the reading log, the report card, any of those things. And we have to go after them and ask them to come in. They don't know what we do. It's, it's like when you see the thing on Facebook every once in a while, like this, if you think that we should teach cursive in schools. I don't have a grand sample of schools that I've been in. It's probably, I mean, just visiting, et cetera, et cetera, probably, I don't know, 75 schools. Um, everybody teaches cursive. They just do. And it's the same thing with the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. So if you add a few more schools, every school I've ever visited, except the ones in Japan, do the Pledge of Allegiance. And I, it would be weird for Japanese students, you know, like Okinawa, I'm pledging allegiance to our flag. But it's done. I don't know where those rumors get started. But if you think it's not cool for us not to do the Pledge of Allegiance, you could call us and find out if we do. You could come by and have a visit walk through the, the building and you learn so much by walking through a building because the culture, the climate of the building just screams at you or it's playing gentle jazz 
Ours is gentle jazz. How did you decide to write this book? What was the the motivation for you to do it? Were you seeing things that you felt the wider society didn't know or understand about schools? Because a lot of people think of school as, oh, yes, it's education. And I'm sure from the student's point of view, not all. But some say, oh, okay, I got to go to school today. And the parents go, well, yeah, this, I'm glad they're going to school because they're out of here now and I can actually get something done. But from your perspective, is obviously much more going on in school than people tend to think. Yes, and I want them to know that. I, When teachers read the book, I would like them to go, oh, I can so relate to that. Yes, 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 yes. Or I need my principal to read this because this is the kind of support I would really like to see. Or I would like the, uh, the school board chair to read this because we just discussed this issue not long ago and it's, it's explained well here. Something for the, that group of people. But the I have all these stories, all these things that happen over time. And we have some friends uh, who live in Richmond, Virginia, or just outside. And I've told them those stories forever, last uh, 25 years or so. And they say, you should write a book about it. And then they kind of pushed me into it in the most gentle, loving, <laughs> uh, supportive way possible. In the beginning, I, I said, I, I don't have anything to say, but I've told some of those stories and others, and they always have a reason to them. I've mentored lots of principals. There are probably four or five principals in the district now, uh, or people who are either teachers on our staff or uh, uh, assistant principals on our staff. And they have heard all those stories, those poor people, probably more than once, those poor people. Um, But they they have a reason. They have a purpose behind them and they're useful and they share some glimmer of something that's going on. Uh, I think some people, the last time they were in a school, it was when their children were in school. And a lot has happened since some children have grown up to be 30, 35 years old. We've learned some things. We've learned to walk upright in, in some circumstances where we weren't before. So they, they need to come visit us to, to see what's going on. When I say us, I mean educators in general. I've talked to recently a guest who, in fact, uh, yes, just this week, talked about the influence of AI and uh, technology transforming society and that schools really need to address that. Do you think that at this point, schools are addressing the challenge of technology, meaning that it, a lot of people are going to be replaced in the in the workforce or have to relearn different jobs because of the incredible acceleration of technology with robotics and in certain jobs where they're automating even more than they used to over in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Is that, a, is that a, a challenge that you feel school districts are addressing? Uh, if they're not addressing it, they'll need to address it. Once again, we're on the easier side of things because the high schools will uh, experience the highs and lows, the good and the bad of AI first, mm-hmm. if they haven't already. And then we will. It's um, We were talking about something the other day. When we institute a new curriculum, when they, when they change uh, a, a textbook, uh, I remember with a with a math adoption, it was super difficult to make this adoption happen, 
in the higher grades, higher grades in our building. So kindergarten and first, if they're going to start with this way of doing this thing, and you know how math can be goofy that way, mm-hmm. we're going to do it this way. No, we're going to do it this way. No, let's go back to the other way. And and sometimes we end up with, there are three ways to solve this. Let me show you all three of them, which is probably the best way. So when we institute that curriculum in kindergarten, no problem, because those children are going to go on to first grade and they already had one year of it. And so it goes. And then second grade is okay. Third grade, not so bad. Fourth and fifth grade is a problem because this is brand new. They didn't have this in third grade and second grade and first grade and kindergarten. AI is going to be a little bit the same way in adapting to however it is we're going to need to shift our thinking about how we use it. We can't just ban it. That's not going to work, I don't think. My high school uh, colleagues might beat me over the head about that, metaphorically, (laughs) of course. But I don't think that serves anybody well. You you can't ban a thing that might be... uh, a lit of somebody making their living doing that uh, that's legal <laughs> i mean you can you know if if he wants to be a drug dealer yes we're going to ban that but we're not going to ban working with the latest tools but then we have to have computers that are upgraded probably that can sort of supercompute because of ai so one thing leads to another from your experience as an educator do you see human nature as human nature, and what I mean by that is we just discussed AI and computers and having to adapt, but the bottom line is we as humans, do we pretty much stay the same over the decades? Hmm. And how and does it apply to learning And because of that? Because we, we just have a certain set of traits, and yes, we'll learn new stuff as it comes along, technology, et cetera, but we're still the same humans, or are we? I don't, that's what I'm asking you. Down deep, I think we are. I think we all have fears about certain things, not that we share the same fears across the board. Uh, We have the same things that make us laugh and the same things that make us cry and the same things that make us wonder why we're doing what we're doing. And we get frustrated and we're happy and we want attention. All of those things are are pretty much static. Um, How we operate in those circumstances can be different over time. I've noticed that students tend to be in general in need of being reminded about what respect looks like, whether it's to their parents or toward us, toward each other and toward themselves, that we're in a more cavalier time and what you, if you say something or you, tweet something or you text something, um, so what? Doesn't matter. I can say anything I want. Our theory on that is no, you just put something out into the universe, you own it, and whatever comes back in your direction, (laughs) you can't control it. Mm -hmm. So if what you text to a group of friends, so-called friends, is ugly and demeaning and nasty, you can expect something to come back. Well, I was just kidding. No, you weren't, because you don't know those people well enough to be kidding. And and I'll even go as far as, like, as a second grade, I'll go, do you know his cat's name? No, I didn't know he had a cat. Well, he does. And since you don't know that, you don't know him well enough to mess with him. Go mess with your brother, because you know him better. 
Uh, yeah, that that's a common sense uh, solution to that. Do you think social media is changing what you have to deal with as an educator in in the schools? Absolutely. We had um, had an app that um, allowed for a discussion group, and it was uh, the third grade teachers were using it. So all of third grade. Every child in third grade had access to this chat group, and it was monitored very closely by all the third grade teachers. So the third graders became fourth graders, went on to different teachers, and nobody remembered that that was still an open chat room. So no one was monitoring it because the reason they were using it was was finished. It was a third grade project thing. So there's this open chat room that fourth graders got on. And predictably, if, if you know anything about kids now, it starts with um, they're, they're talking to each other, they're, they're um, communicating with each other, and it's, um, um, hi, aren't you in, in Mrs. Willis's class? Yeah. And then, then it's, um, do you like Mrs. Willis's class? No, it's boring. Now, as soon as you get the no, it's boring, the floodgates open. It ended up with them being ugly to each other continually. So that this lasted maybe two days before a child showed us a computer and said, um, we started this thing and some of us were being nice and some of us are not being nice. And believe me, they're sitting next to each other in class and saying ugly things, not right that minute. They may be working on a project. They may be playing soccer together at lunchtime. But this is it's like uh, no holds barred. They're just going to say anything they want. It was sort of a microcosm of stuff that happens with um, with texts on, on phones. And we met with them. It was like 15 students. And some of them hadn't said anything that they shouldn't say. But they also didn't say, hey, guys, you need to stop. Nowhere in there did I say, hey, what, hey, do we have to do it this way or can't we be nice or something like that? Nope, they don't do that. They don't tend to correct each other. They don't tend to stand up for themselves in, in a way that goes, you just pushed me. What was what was that about? And we have to teach that kind of thing all the time. Now, they might text it <laughs> or get uglier and say something else. You know, you're a blah, 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 blah for pushing right. me. So it, it's, it's um, you know, the keyboard warrior thing. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm sitting behind my keyboard, I am, oh, I'm Thor. Yeah, very brave. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> but then when, when, and it's parents happens all the time, like, hi, yeah, what I said, I'm just, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that is, that is a concern. And the children who have phones, um, the American Pediatric Society says, wait until eight, meaning Kids don't need cell phones until they're in eighth grade, but you have to be, you have to be Thor to keep your child from having one or keep yourself from caving in to let them have it. But parents will bring in um, um, a printout of nasty, nasty things that are going on back and forth, making fun of each other, calling each other names. And it, it's, it's interesting how they come in, they're, they're coming to us about something that happened on the phones and not at school time, right? And go, Dr. Corley, this is this is just terrible. Go, yes, it's terrible. And yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do about, about that? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, I have the print on and go, oh, this, 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 uh, gosh, I, I feel so bad. I mean, I didn't think our kids would, would do something like this. And he said, yeah, what are we going to do? 
well, you bought the phone. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, because everybody, you know, they the, the kids all have, yeah, and this is what they do with them. And this is why we say it, it's not a thing. You shouldn't have it. Our cell phone policy <laughs> is um, exceedingly restrictive. So you want your daughter to have a cell phone. And we say, one, you need to come in to get the paper. I'm not sending the paper home with your child. And no, there's no way to do it online by design. So you come in, you fill out the paper, and you see that it says child may not use the phone on the bus or at any time in school. The phone must be off and in the child's book bag. Like, what's the point? Now it's a showpiece. Mm -hmm. So, and it has the opportunity to get lost or stolen. If it's in the book bag at school. And sometimes parents go, you know, I... Yeah, yeah. We, and I, I could see the bus being an extension of school, and that's why it shouldn't be on during that time as well. Exactly, because they're all huddled around something, and we don't know if they have parental controls on it or not. They right. may be looking at porn. Yeah, exactly. In your book, and you wrote it again with Glenn Plaskin, is he a friend of yours, an associate, um, co-writer? No, he's um, he has written, his resume is quite long. Uh, pretty much anybody you remember from the 60s or 70s, who was um, a pop culture individual or a political individual, he is probably interviewed. And he's written for um, uh, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker. um, And he either will ghostwrite a book, which he did not do, or he'll assist people in writing books. Right. Well, I, I'm just curious because I, I know that they're your ideas and that he just, I assume, helped you in terms of just formulating the format of yes. the book itself. And speaking of the format of the book itself, how did you design it uh, in the sense of how you wanted to present it to people who are reading it for the first time? Again, it's called The Magical Place We Call School, Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World. How did you decide to format the book in terms of subject matter or progress, chronology, et cetera? I started writing about what I wanted to write about, and then we figured out what the commonalities were in these particular stories and those particular stories. And I knew that the last chapter was going to be a love letter to uh, teachers. And I knew that one or two chapters were going to be about the Saltonstall, um, the school that we opened uh, that was a break the mold school in Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, Glenn insisted that I write about school shootings. I didn't want to. He insisted that I write about COVID. I didn't want to. And he insisted that I write about bullying, which I knew I would have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I have some good solutions in there. And that the COVID chapter was interesting. The person who was our nurse, who was absolutely awesome during that time. And it, we were uh, we were pin cushions during that time because people loved us or hated us. And some uh, it changed daily uh, or hourly. And the the protocols kept changing. So our rules kept changing. And then we'd have to send that out. And then we'd get the phone calls about the complaints. But Mm -hmm. that nurse I saw at um, a workshop on school shootings uh, recently, we spent seven hours together and I had a book with me and I 
signed it for her. She didn't realize that I signed it for her. She thought I, it was just to look at, she was going to hand it back. And she went to hand it back and she said, I wasn't paying attention in the back because I was reading the COVID chapter. Oh my gosh, do I have PTSD? Oh, I forgot how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, some of it is a tribute to her about how she, how she handled it. Um, but, um, but once you pointed out that you signed it and it's hers to keep, she was, yes. Oh, she was in heaven. She was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Tell but us she, about uh, Brunswick stew. That turns into, that turned into salt and stall stew and a different kind turned into red cedar <laughs> stew. Um, the, the opening, the preface, um, the metaphor of red cedar stew is that we come from lots of different places. Um, a lot of our students are from Honduras, Nicaragua, um, oh, Guatemala, rural Mexico, Venezuela, El Salvador. About 42, 44% of our population is Hispanic. Um, and when you take a Brunswick stew recipe and you look at it and you know that children hate lima beans, you make sure that you take those out so that's part of the recipe. Um, and then you kind of go, ah, let's just start from scratch. May as well. So it's a tomato-based thing. And um, the staff members um, have to stew chickens. We have to teach the younger ones how to do that and then debone it. We I made a video with a couple of kids about five years ago. So we send the video out so they can learn. And all the children are to bring in particular vegetables. And they do that. We have never gotten exactly what we think we need. <laughs> that is, it's not always a balance. So we have no quality control on this. It's always good, always good, but slightly different every now and again. And this takes so, place at Red Cedar Elementary School. Yes, it does. And it's um, it'll be a week or two before Christmas, before we leave for Christmas. And the, the cutting of the vegetables is kind of neat. It's in the, uh, we have an atrium. Um, center of the building where we house, uh, we move the media center there. So all the books are there. So you pass by books every day and you see what's new and like, oh, as soon as I, it's library time, I'm going to get that book. It's, so it's always there. Yeah. So we move all the bookshelves back and we cover all the tables with paper. And there's a chef, always a chef involved in starting the room. And then there are other chefs because this is a, you know, this is sort of a resort area. We have more than our share of pretty cool chefs around and um, they come by and I love to watch them cut things <laughs> because they're so good at it and they leave with all of their fingers intact. Um, so um, we cut up all the vegetables. The aroma is wonderful. Um, the thing about the, we come from different places is I would never know what malanga or um, calabasa um, or um, yuca would be. Those are all root vegetables and they have very subtle, different tastes to them, sort of like potatoes, but not really. They never get that soft. And the children are very familiar with those because that's what, what mom cooks with. So they introduce something that we didn't have, we wouldn't have if we didn't have them. And well, then you're saying the stew is a metaphor. Absolutely. Oh. And I was just about to do the capsulization and we <laughs> wouldn't be who we are if we didn't have those children because we learned so much from them. 
Before I let you go, what's the most important point that you want people to take away from the book? You probably have a gem of an elementary school right down the street from you. You should go and see if it truly is. And if it isn't, find out how you can help. Find out what you can do to support your local school district. They can give you a very long list. I bet they could. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Dr. Kathleen Corley. She's an author along with Glenn Plaskin of The Magical Place We Call School, Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Dr. Corley, that's C-O-R-L-E-Y. Go to the magical place we call school.com. And Kathleen, thanks for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel. <laughs>